skies, bliss and heaven. Oh, it was gorgeousness and gorgeousity made flesh. It was like a bird of rarest spun heaven metal, or like silvery wine flowing in a spaceship, gravity all nonsense now. As I sluished, I knew such lovely pictures. Remember, hello oh. there. Welcome to Pivotal Film. I'm Tom Nolan, and I'm Mario Ponzio, and this is episode 30, 33. 33. And we're talking about best animated shorts from last year. We can't remember which ones we really loved. Yeah, we'll go back to the episode because we um we just focused on the long list, so we didn't like go outside the box or anything. To I find. remember, I liked Animal Behavior. What I liked the French knew? one that you didn't like. Weekends. Uh, no, the wa- um the wall. Weekends was the one we really liked, and then Watch- I liked. The walrus. Watch the animated short list. I just can't remember what I what I liked. All right. Well, while Mario looks that up, um, let's let's do some beer real quick so we can get to the so we can get to the thing. Yeah. Um, we Mario brought um, in response to the fact that we've been saying for a long time that no one's making brown ales. He found a brown he ale was bum- over here, Mr. Weiner over here. I know. I was whining about it. There's no brown ales. Uh, Hanging Hills Brewing Company came through and they have produced Driftwood. It is a brown Age of ale. Sale. Is that the one I like the most? Age of Sail. You did like Age of Sail. That was the Ian McShane one. Yeah. But the, as a sailor, or is it Bill? I like Grandpa name? Walrus. That was the name name of the one, right? Yeah, Pepe Le Morris. Yeah, we both like Weekends. In my second, my number I, two is I Grandpa Walrus. I, I hated Grandpa Walrus. All right, so this is just a brown ale. I like when it's just a brown ale. There's literally nothing else. Yeah. Driftwood brown ale. Yeah. And you like Hanging Hills. I love Hanging Hills. Out of Hartford, Connecticut. The Metacomet IPA is one of my favorites. Dink it. Proudly brewed in Hartford, Connecticut. I like that. I like the smell of a brown ale. Mm. That's a solid brown. Yeah. Solid brown. Yeah. It's got that leathery taste. I like the leathery taste in a brown ale. Makes me feel like I'm a cowboy. Makes me feel like I'm in Wyoming, killing Gene Hackman. <laughs> it's a good pub beer, because it's not very thick. Yeah. Speaking <clears throat> of breweries, well, we weren't speaking of breweries at all, but this is a brewery. Counterweight is moving out of Hamden. Where are they moving? They're moving to Cheshire. Weird. They're going to build a, a new installation in Cheshire to support their increased operations. So they can t- continue to make decent but overrated So they can IPAs. continue to make 12 different IPAs that all taste exactly the same. Yeah, here's our 13. And somebody said, like, the most consistently good IPA, like, in the like Facebook comments. And I'm like, I almost felt really tempted to write. Seahag? Yeah. Seahag ellipses, question mark. Um, yeah, that's, I mean, nothing against Hanging Hills. So or the not reason Hills, Counterweight. We had the best animated short on our mind, Tom, was because this past Sunday... Now, almost a week ago for our listeners, was the uh, 92nd Academy Awards. Oh, yeah. I forgot yeah. that happened. At, they were longer than last year's. And well, it seemed like they were going to be moving. They were moving they were much moving faster. Super fast. And then Eminem and then they're saying, just like, lose yourself. 
And it, well, and also that awful, fucking awful Maya Rudolph, uh, Kristen Wiig segment. It was funny. No, they it started was singing. It, okay, yeah, it was fine. No, I I didn't like any of it. Oh, that was funny until they started singing. Do you know what I really didn't like? No, the what biggest did you like? thing I didn't like about it, um, besides like some of the early winners are kind of pissing me off. I fucking hated the Will Ferrell Julie Lee's Dreyfus thing, where they like made fun of cinematography about like what's the like blah blah blah. Mm-hmm. Like they usually do this joke every year with like some minor category like sound editing or sound design, uh-huh. like sound mixing. But they're like, oh, what's this mean? And it's just like it never lands. But this year is about cinematography, and it's like you what? <laughs> the fuck? This is like the fourth like. People actually at the bar I was at Trinity Bar burned down and came from the ashes like a phoenix. Is that how bars work? Yeah, well, of course. I mean, that, Delaney's burned down and it's coming back too. It just took a little longer. It's not growing out of the ground though. Who knows, man? <laughs> you haven't been watching. Um, but other people at this bar were bemoaning the fact, like it's like people know what cinematography is. Like it's not, it's not even funny. It's not a good joke. Uh, yeah. All the jokes of this didn't land. But here's the thing: I don't. They were talking about this on, on, you know, we were just talking about the the Ringers podcast, the Big Picture. They were talking about they were like ranking people's acceptance speeches. Like I don't even really care. I just wanted to see who gets the awards. Like the 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 show means very little to me. I was doing was, was it like I was doing other stuff. Was it Bong Joon Ho, Bong Joon Ho, Bong Joon Ho, Bong Joon Ho? Yeah, and then you know uh, a couple, of, and it doesn't matter because I don't give a shit. Um, I mean, I was prepping for, like, this podcast while I was, like, watching the Oscars. And then everyone once Well, because the be more like, important awards show happened weeks ago. Right. I mean, so I didn't even really care. We except had to pay that, that guy I, and tons of Quaaludes, yeah. as we said. Except that we did end up caring, Mario. Because after everything played out exactly like all the prognosticators were saying for weeks it was going to play out. Uh, to be s- fair, Neighbors Window winning live action short was a, was, a, was a surprise. Who cares? Except for the people that won Neighbors Window. Uh, Who cares? Ford versus Ferrari winning sound editing was a bit of a shocker. Yeah, and Once Upon a Time in Hollywood winning production design was no, a little I, off. Uh, it was. It was like the third. The, it was not in like, betting odds. Yeah, I think it was. I think it, no, in betting odds, it was. It was. The, it was the lead. I thought they, if I, you look at like DraftKings and whatnot, that was the lead. But I think they assumed 1917 was going to win that award. Yeah, but been. that was the first thing when I texted you, like, huh. Oh, no, it's going to be a bad day. No, it was actually, you thought it was going to be a good day, because 1917 <coughs> was already not winning awards it was supposed to win. Yeah. Um, but then it ended up being that uh, Parasite kind of took all the major awards that it should. Uh, yeah. I mean, it, it should have, I suppose, won everything that it was nominated for, but it won the big ones. Yeah, kind of. it definitely should have won film editing. It I just should like... have won production design, and it should have won... I keep forgetting it wasn't even nominated for cinematography. Don't you really like how everyone's talking about how, like, the paradigm has shifted now? Like, that a non-American film has won, like, an Academy Award. It's like, they're going to give it to something stupid next year. They're, you know. Yeah, no, of course. It, people, I, people forget that Green Book won last year. Well, and I love that, like, everyone's freaking out about this French Dispatch poster that got released. And, like, there's a whole entries on like AV Club and Vulture like analyzing the poster for French Dispatch. And they released some stills from it today too. It's just like guys, come just on. It's like But can't you see like a more washed out Can't you see French movie? Dispatch being not very good in the academy just being like it's this it's it's his year. Oh, yeah. He's going to do this is the one we give it to Wes Anderson. I, or I could see them being like, "Oh man. It's the year of Fincher. He's getting everything from Mank." But Mank sounds good. Yeah, but like, your guy is in Mank. Which one? Your Sue uh, Tom Burke. Oh, He's Orson yeah. Welles. That's a good. That's a good casting. It's gonna be good. Yeah. 
gonna be good. Um, but I was I was upset. There was one ups, There was one kind of upset I wanted to have happen. The yep. Best original song. I really wanted stand up to win in the last minute, just because mm-hmm. I wanted Cynthia Ervo to become the youngest uh, EGOT winner. Mm. That would have been fun. She already won a Tony. Yeah, she won mm. a Tony, an Emmy, and a Grammy. Would have been pretty good. Oscar at thirty-two, I think. That would have been pretty good. Now everyone from Widows should just have an EGOT. Viola Davis can get EGOT now. Uh yeah. I think she just needs a Grammy. I'm ready for Tony, that. Maybe. I may, I, maybe Elizabeth Debicki will be really good in Tenet. <laughs> maybe. I don't think she has a Grammy yet. She might get one for the soundtrack for She'll, Tenet. She could sing some uh, Tom Waits songs and get her get I would, Grammy. I'd, I'd buy that record. Elizabeth Debicki sings you like, Tom didn't Waits. Didn't you like Scarlett Johansson's Tom Waits album? Uh, I think Scarlett Johansson's a good singer. I, I think when... But I remember you, when you said... Um, that you heard it, you you thought it wasn't. I'm sure bad. I did because I think she's really. I think she sounds really awesome, and she makes a lot of sense singing Tom Waits because she's very. She's got uh, a nice gravel to her voice, nice rasp. Makes a lot of sense. Um, but yeah, now the Oscars overall, you know, pretty, pretty okay. It was fine. Lose yourself shit and all that. We could have done without that, but Cares. whatever. It was a satisfying awards. Bong Joon Ho seemed happy. Mm-hmm. I like my favorite thing about the awards in terms of hypocrisy. And now as interpreters writing a a translator, interpreter, what's the correct term? Interpreter, interpreter yeah. Is writing a screenplay about the uh, Hollywood, about the um, awards the season. Awards season yeah. My favorite thing about the awards season was Elton John pretending like he's never won an Academy Award before. Or like he's never won anything. Well, he's like, whoa, friend, I can't believe you gave friend, this to me. My friend John turned to me and was like, what the fuck's he doing? He's already won for Lion King. <laughs> I was like, I was like, did he win for a lot? Like, I know Tim Rice got the Oscar, but did Elton John also get the Oscar? Mm-hmm. And I was like, yeah, of course he did. Yeah, I'm not sure. And he even said it. He's like, oh, the, or they said they said it on the telecast. He's like, this is his second Oscar. It's like, why does he care so much? Get out of here. We Bernie Tolpin. He's really happy for Bernie Tolpin. Bernie Tolpin seemed just fine. He's like, he's I don't like, care. I don't like all the money I have already. <laughs> yeah, Give me more me. money. I got the good singer in the movie. But what about me, I think we can officially. Um, Put a wrap on 2019 now. I will say really quickly, after having watched three of the five best animated shorts, uh, Memorable is, is significantly better than Pear. Well, yeah, because it's amazing. Pear. Pear love. Pear love. Not Pear love. <laughs> that would have been a good movie. Um, I really love this pear. Mm, stone so, fruit. Someone eating a pear. Like, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, no, it's Memorable. It's, it's on Vimo. Um, I got some movie that kind of elevates its animated style. Yeah, it's kind of crazy. That's depressing as shit, though. It is. It's tough. See, I don't find that stuff depressing because I'm just so amazed by the like how it got that it existed. But it's you know it's, what I mean. It uses its artistic style in order to convey oh, the emotional. I part. know, but if it was just a regular movie, I'd dancing, find it more depressing. Part where he's dancing with like the, his barely constructed wife. Oh, barely constructed wife. <laughs> looks like she phrase. looked like Kevin Bacon from Hollow Man. <laughs> That's a terrible thing to say about someone's deconstructed wife. Or barely did. constructed wife. She was um, stunning, though. He, he really liked Kevin Bacon. But, uh, but 2019? Goodbye. The books. We're moving on. Because Portrait of a Lady on Fire is a 2020 movie, according to the Pivotal Film Directors. It's, we're the only ones. They're the only ones that matter. Yeah. Um, the, our board yeah, has told us. The voting us board that. of, of 10,000 people. Mm-hmm. People don't realize this. We have 10,000 voters. Yeah. It's weird that they come up with Two different lists, but 10,000 They know people. us really well. Yeah, they're like, we think this would be a Tom movie. 
They they caucus actually. Yeah. So it's really complicated. It's it was it was bad this year. I was almost not viable. <laughs> yeah, that's true. You got eighty five percent of the vote, and I was like, "Whoa, boy!" I was almost <laughs> exiled your teeth. from from the podcast. <laughs> um, so I think fully we've, we've talked about some twenty twenty movies, but uh, now we're gonna be we're gonna be talking about twenty twenty more and more because we're we're in twenty twenty now. Yeah, good one. We're deeply in twenty twenty. <laughs> we don't have to look anymore. Deeply uh, entrenched in twenty twenty. And uh, so, I no longer write nineteen when I do when I write dates. I didn't have that problem ever this year. I did. I submitted all my paperwork for my MFA with twenty nineteen. I've date. had several. I've had several different people keep writing twenty uh, two thousand two though. That's two thousand two. Yeah, like oh two. They can get right the hell out of here. Um, so I saw this weekend uh, a, a movie that I I don't even know what the title of it is anymore because they changed the title after its thirty three million dollar. Box oh, they did? Yeah, now it's called Harley Quinn and the Birds of Prey. Oh. Previously, it was called Birds of Prey and the Fantabulous Emancipation of One Harley Quinn. You never... And you're dumb enough to be building a case against him. So, unless we all want to die very unpleasant death, we're going to have to work together. Sure. Psychologically speaking, vengeance rarely brings the catharsis we hope for. Yeah. Are we ready? You blow up Hyena in a bathtub? I named him Bruce after that hunky Wayne guy. <laughs> the Joker and Harley Quinn have broken up sometime after the events of the 2017 Academy Award winning Suicide Squad. Didn't win the Academy Award. Makeup. Oh, it did? Yeah. Oh my god. The DC uh, Universe won an Academy Award before the Marvel Universe. Fascinating. Uh, she has cut her hair decided to take up roller derby just try to you know find a way in which to to live her life and uh one drunken night she drives a truck into the ace chemicals plant blowing it up and sending a signal to the world that she is no longer under the protection of the joker um and a mass of people go to kill her one of which why do they go to kill her just because just because she's wronged these people okay throughout the days of being being joker's girlfriend because i'm in this world, somehow, unbelievably, Jared Leto's Joker is an intimidating force. Yeah, I don't see how that works, but go I mean, Did you see Suicide Squad? I did. I he's, did. He's not it an is intimidating bad. force. It is bad. Yeah. Um, one such individual is Roman Sayanis, a black mass played by Ewan McGregor, who concurrently to wanting to murder uh, Harley Quinn for numerous grievances uh, is also in search of a diamond from a, a mob gang uh, that had been lost, which on said diamond is etched the bank account numbers of numerous different fortunes. Uh-huh. Um, that particular diamond is stolen by a... Why would they etch bank account numbers on a diamond? Yeah. You know what? The mob did it? 
Yeah, the mob. This mob group. They etched the bank account numbers on the diamond? Yeah, I don't know why they would do that, to be honest. Like, thinking about that. Is this like an Uncut Gems spinoff? Is Julia Fox in it? (laughs) Um, This is what Adina Mandel did after she left. Oh. She just became Mary Elizabeth Winstead. Oh, maybe. All right. It should be Ambrosie Perez. Um, The diamond, when it's being picked up by Victor Zaz, is uh, stolen by a pickpocket, Cassandra Kane, a young pickpocket who uh, swallows the diamond. Harley Quinn tells Black Mask that she can retrieve the diamond, but Black Mask, in his ways, um, hires a bunch of assassins, paying, offering $500,000 to bring Cassandra in alive. Uh, along the way, uh, Huntress is a freelance murderer, kind of roaming around, uh, killing all the people involved in this assassination of this mob family who had the diamond. Um, what the, what the, the, Bertelli, the Bertinelli... Um, Diamond, as it's called, because uh, it was run by the Bertinelli mob family. It turns out she's the daughter of the mob, of oh. that mob family, and was the sole survivor of this massacre. Um, so she she wants to get the diamond it. back yeah. first. She doesn't, want the, she doesn't want the diamond. She just wants to kill revenge. Revenge. Gotcha. Um, also, at the same time, Black Mask is uh, being pursued by a. Um, detective Renee Montonia and also uh, is hiring this uh, singer Diana Lance um, to be his driver but she suddenly realizes that his ways are, are pretty evil he enjoys cutting the faces off of people mm. it's his big thing is just cutting off faces That's cool. and being in a gay relationship with Chris Messini Messina oh yeah yeah I, I read about that um, and eventually these these women coalesce together and uh, challenge Black Mask and the group of assassins going against them. This movie is fine. It's a pretty... It's entertaining. Um, I can't remember his name, but the director, uh, Chad, Chad Labuski, uh, is that his name? The guy that did the John Wick films? Oh, boy. This is how good I am at this podcast sometimes. Oh, boy. Chad uh, Stalisky. Uh, assisted with the fight choreography. So there is some set pieces of fights. Uh, one such is in a conveniently raining uh, due to fire ex- fire extinguisher. Mm-hmm. What's, it, what's it called? Uh, you know what I'm talking about? When yeah. Water comes down mm-hmm. to take out the fire. What's that called? Fire sprinkler. A fire sprinkler jail cell fight is uh, done in near one take, and that's... It's pretty clean and consistently shown, and all the fight scenes in this look really great, and the action's pretty pretty stellar. Um, the film that is containing said fight scenes is questionably delivered. It often tries to do a meta narrative and calling itself uh, very eighties like. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, when grievances show up, they pop up on the screen. Renee Montoya kind of follows the, you know, the detective standing against corruption who has to turn in her badge and gun and they you know harley quinn doing narration has to repeatedly say this is like an 80s cop movie and there's numerous times where she'll apologize for having not explained backstory and go let me rewind Mm. and give backstory and you watch that. you always like that in movies yeah and you watch that and go like just because you're explaining you're doing a meta thing of 80s movies or of movies that have done these sort of tropes before. 
does not at all mean you're subverting said tropes. It just means you're acknowledging that you're doing the tropes. Right. Um, did she think she was making it? Do you think they were making a Deadpool movie? They, 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 people have been comparing it to Deadpool. It doesn't have the same sort of irreverence as a Deadpool. It's still played fairly straight. Uh, there's the humor in it isn't as intensely over the top in terms of its meta-ness. Uh-huh. Um, it tries to be funny at times, but it's not. It's more just kind of straightforward. Mm-hmm. A lot of woman empowerment kind of aspects of it, which I think kind of land. Mm-hmm. Uh, all the male characters are, are end up being kind of villains in some way. Like even the kind of like nice guy downstairs, which I thought was like a choice, but was fine. A lot of people were not happy about that. I, I read, read a um, Daily Beast article about that. Yeah, I read that. a little bit about that. Don't know why I read Daily Beast sometimes. Sometimes I read articles just to get mad. Well, I don't read the articles to get mad. Sometimes I read um, like comments on like what people have to say about... Like Reddit comments or whatever? Or, no, not like or just like comments on like a review on RogerEbert.com and just like the just you know a hundred <coughs> comments long of people just beating up on each other about how you're you know politically wrong about your interpretation of this movie and stuff. Yeah, I mean, and I thought that was fine, um, but it's it's not reinventing the wheel. It is a good sort of popcorn feature. It's it's definitely still not even the best action movie of the year. Bad Boys for Life is still mm-hmm. significantly better. Uh, I I still don't buy. Margot Robbie's Harley Quinn. There's something that feels as though she's playing a role in this. And I, I didn't see it, this. It's, mo- it's right. her Jersey accent, while in tune with Harley Quinn. Um, like, like you really have to compare it to the Batman animated series because that's the origin of Harley Quinn is from mm-hmm. the Batman animated series. It's still missing it. It has a real artifice to it still. Well, so he- here's what I would say: is that. It's characterization almost. Yeah, I caricature. I think they haven't given. I think this is DC's problem in general: is that they, everything they do is artifice and characterization. They don't trust these characters or their filmmakers. Even though Zack Snyder made like fifteen of these movies, to um, have to exist in a world, to exist in. Uh, what we, the viewer perceives as a previously existing world. You yeah. know what I mean? So everything has to be either meta or it has to be an origin of something or it has to be explained or it has to be the like the very beginning or the very end of something. It can't just be a movie. It's kind of what the MCU has gotten really good at is that like, you know, Ant-Man 2, which is just like a, you know, I would say is kind of one of the most like, ancillary films that exist because it does one thing which is it just shows you how Ant-Man got in the quantum realm at the beginning of Endgame. They made a whole movie just so they could explain how Ant-Man ends up in the quantum realm at the beginning of Endgame. You know what I mean? Um, But they don't worry about trying to like bring mythology or anything really significant to it. You know what I mean? It's not meta. It's not... um, you know, the beginning of something, it's not the end of something, it's not an origin story, it's literally just a movie about Ant-Man. You know what I mean? And they're, they've never been able to do that. Everything is so heavy-handed in everything they do, so they can't just make an interesting Harley Quinn movie. It's gotta be meta, it's gotta be, you know, have these goofy asides and, like, do their rewind stuff. It's gotta have a big, huge cast, even though Deadpool... Which was like a, a Deadpool two, which is a meta movie. Like he formed this big crew of people. It's just they're just not. It's not yeah. original. You know what I mean? One of the, one of the issues is it, with this movie is its overproduction. Mm-hmm. It, it has like 
it really goes heavy into like the Joel Schumacher style Gotham. Ooh, and you already that's saw, bad. You already saw like the Gotham of this universe in Batman versus Superman and partially in Justice League, and it wasn't that. And this is like New York City, but then like with a bunch of weird <laughs> kind of Joel Schumacher esque tones to it. It's not as over the top as that. Is like, the camera always crooked? No, no, it's not. <laughs> but like reason. Ace Chemicals is like has that looks is more grandiose than the Ace Chemicals of Tim Burns Batman. Mm-hmm. You know, it it feels more silly and goofy than that. Mm-hmm. Um, the Founders Pier has like is deteriorating and broken. You know, you get like the nice little Oswald Coppelbot kind of like shrug with his statue there. Mm-hmm. Or not Oswald Coppelbot's dad, technically. Um, but like it's, and there's like a big final set pieces at this amusement park. It's a rundown and it just, it feels like they're trying to create this kind of like mixture of like the Schumacher, Batman, Gotham, and kind of, you know, the, a little more tone like yeah. New York. Um, but it just, it feels like it's just too much. It feels very overproduced. Um, and being too much, my one thing that I have to criticize in this is Ewan McGregor. A lot of people are loving on him in this. I think he painfully detracts from this movie because it's going to be an issue that, that we're going to disagree with in our uh, special bonus episode um, coming up in a few weeks uh, with like you said, the broken arrow in, uh-huh. in, in uh, John Travolta. Uh, it feels like that. He feels like he's acting in a completely different film. Listen, Mario, I brought it up when we talked about <laughs> when we talked about Doctor Sleep. I think we may, as a culture, have to really confront how we feel about you and McGregor. I just think we do. People love his Obi Wan. They're not going to agree with you. Man. I don't. But why? I don't like his Obi Wan. What is there to like about his Obi Wan? I think they think it's like the one saving grace of the prequels. I don't think it is. I don't think the, the prequel has any saving graces except for the fact that it's so bad that it's kind of awesome. Yeah, and, and I think compared to like, because I think overall, like, I don't necessarily buy Margot Robbie's Harley Quinn yet. Like just because her accent's still well, off. I just don't think they've given but her a good. Like, she's like, they haven't given her a good movie to do. She's definitely doing. She's doing a consistent character. Yeah, she's she trying to build something. To yes, and yes. like Mary Elizabeth Winstead as Huntress, like, and Rosie Perez too. But really, Mary Elizabeth Winstead's really good at playing like to the through line of what this movie's trying to do in terms of being kind of like silly, mm-hmm. but have this like seriousness to it. So her character's really serious throughout it, but is completely detached from kind of what would be reality and mm-hmm. she does like a great job with that and then you have both chris messini messina and um you and mcgregor just kind of off doing their own goofy fucking thing yeah it's weird i don't know who cast chris messina in a major villain role i like chris messina but, but i don't know why don't know he's there. yeah he looked like he was a fucking he looked like lance bass he i it doesn't look like Victor's ads for one thing. And I understand like unique choices and whatnot, but he looks like an NSYNC member. And you oh, can no. barely tell the fact until he's like, oh, look at these scratches I have. These are all the people I've killed. Um, and then you and McGregor will just kind of like go high, like just go intensely goofy at points and then like completely dial down. He has one really great scene where he thinks this like woman at the bar is singing for him and he kind of like is laughing at him, I mean. And he makes her like get up on a table and dance for him and take off her dress and whatnot. And gets like really sexual and weird. And it's the one time that's like doing like a real kind of psychosis mm-hmm. that is Black Mask. Mm. And he does a good job there. But then he just goes back into this goofiness and this like 
effeminateness that's like feels forced and fake. It yeah. feels like a, a choice that was made that doesn't really have a connection or reason why it exists. And I'm just glad. Like I, I'm upset that Black Black Mask is consistently like one of my preferred kind of Batman villains. Um, just because he's he's interested. He's not. He's not over the top, and he's more human, and, like, Joker sucks. I fucking hate I'm not Joker. a Batman guy, so, um, like, it, my knowledge of this stuff begins and ends with, like, Joker and Bane and, But he's, like, like a, he's a grounded villain who has, like, some mm-hmm. ethos to him, and they fucking, they kill him in this. Like, he gets blown the fuck up. Well, like, and you see, like, body parts fly around. So I was both upset about that. But after seeing what Ewan McGregor was doing with the character, I was really happy. But that here's just the thing, like, though. Get so him out of the movie. DC, I am So I think everyone after the, the general success of Aquaman and like the total complete Which success of... I think Aquaman's fine. Right. I like Aquaman. Of, of the you, Joker. Did you catch Aquaman? No. No. Um, it's perfectly harmless. I just, it's like Wonder Woman. Wonder Woman's harmless. Um, yeah, I'm not looking for... So that actually speaks to my point, is that... After those two things, and Wonder Woman also, they were like, it's weird that this is what they've got next and up their sleeve. They have this this Harley Quinn movie, which apparently from reading, like, they had to do massive reshoots on. Um, I don't know why they spent $100 million on this film. Well, it's because they had to redo a bunch of it. And then they have this Wonder Woman 1984 movie, which just looks goofy as shit. Like, Wonder Woman... Like, the reasons people liked Wonder Woman are that it made so much money because it connected with people emotionally. I'm not 100% sure everyone was looking for Wonder Woman's next move to be a goofy Stranger Things ripoff. Yeah, to be I just don't Stranger think they Things did. and Thor, like, um, Ragnarok. So everyone was praising the fact that Joker was kind of, like, outside of the box and it goes kind of against the plan or the idea of having, like, an overall universe plan like Marvel does. But I feel like now we're running into this shit again where, you know, it wouldn't surprise me to find out in, like, a Batman movie coming, in, like, Robert Pattinson's second Batman movie, A, that there's another Joker, or that, like, Black Mask is just back. And not he isn't back, it's just a different Black Mask. And he was never in any other movie. It's just, this is Black Mask. And then he dies in that one, too. So maybe Black Mask will be this character that just dies in movies. Well, I think even showing, you know... Copplepot is kind of like a nudging you towards the fact because you know, but maybe Colin they, Farrell's playing. But that's the thing. Penguin. But they're like nudging you towards it. But would it surprise you to find out that like they try to connect them? They or that they don't connect them, and that or that something breaks down, and like he doesn't end up being in the movie or some like weird shit like that. Well, I, I just think, nothing would surprise me with it DC. It feels like they're trying to make with DC right now these concurrent universes. Like they're gonna try to. I, I feel like they're gonna try to do like Batman being its own thing, and then you know Suicide Squad and. Harley Quinn being its own thing, and then Wonder Woman and Aquaman and Flash kind of in Cyborg, maybe even getting being they, its own thing. But why would they do that? Because Wonder Woman... So Wonder Woman is in Justice League, which takes place when? Now? Yeah. And then, but she's also still in 1984. Why? She can, she can be in the future whenever what's she is. The, but what's the point? To establish Diana. <laughs> I go so I don't necessarily think they need to have an MCU type like overall arc to to build narratives around. I just don't understand the point of any of the decisions they're making. No, I don't think they do either. I think it's it's a just collection like, of ideas. It's not like one. You don't have like a Kevin Feig there, kind of like guiding things, which is fine. You don't you don't need that. But 
at the same time, it feels like they're trying to do several different through lines and several different kind of like mini universes. And I think that's going to be confusing. And also there's going to be massive failures in some of those choices that just bring back the, you know, the mockery that was well, and I from think, Batman and the Snyder version. Right. I think part of it. So you go to, you have, I think you have four main franchises, right? You have the MCU, you have Star Wars, you have DC, and you have the Fast and the Furious movies. Tremors. And Bond Tremors, yeah. But they're, they're, Bond. And Bond, Bond yeah. I suppose. Um, MCU is obviously number one. And the Saws. And, no, because... The, There's nine of them. Spiral's going to make $500 million opening weekend. I, I don't think the last three or four Saw movies made that combined. Oh, no, I don't think all the Saw... I think all... Eight Saw movies together so I would, did not make I'm that. not going to count the Saw movies. I'm saying you have those ones. Star Wars, I mean, MCU is obviously number one. I would almost say, like, the Fast and the Furious movie is number two. I don't like those movies. I actually haven't seen one of those movies in a really long time. But I get the impression that they're more focused on fun than they are on meaning something. Have you seen the trailer for the new one? Of course they are. Yeah. So, and everyone understands that. No one goes. Noticed, but that thing with the wire. And the car flying over. You don't the think that's gonna that, work? I don't think that that. Work. You don't think it'll work? Um, or this guy who apparently died in the third movie, just being like, "Hey guys." But Lucas Black is back. That's okay. But my point is that that movie, those two, see, those two franchises understand completely <laughs> what they are and what they're doing. The rest of them have no fucking idea. They're literally just flailing in the ocean of ideas, being like, "Oh, I think I got one. I think I got one. Let's just do this." And then everyone's like, "Yeah, that didn't." That was a terrible idea. Why did you do that? Um, I don't know. I'm interested to see. I kind of like the idea of Margot Robbie as Harley Quinn. If you know, if I ever had some free time again, maybe it was something I'd see. But when you told me that it was just kind of like, meh, I was like, good, thank you. But we did both watch a movie this week, Margot. We did, and it is a movie that came out on at Sundance. Uh, it's a lot like our movie that we talked about last week. What movie was that we talked about last week? What are you talking about? It was also a Sundance movie. I have my notes here. Miss Americana. Oh, okay. It was a Sundance movie. And then it just I was, appeared. I was like, I didn't see a Sundance movie. No, no, no. <laughs> and then it just appeared. The same thing with this. It uh, premiered at Sundance. And now here it is on Netflix. Two weeks later for us all to enjoy. It is uh, Horse Girl, written, uh, uh, directed by Jeff Baina and uh, written by Jeff Baina and Allison Brie. And starring Allison Brie. And Paul Reiser. Yeah. Significantly. Happy birthday. <laughs> so what are you going to do tonight to celebrate? Mm, I think probably I'll just go out with some friends from my Zumba class. You deserve to have fun. How have you been? I've been good. I've been going by to see mom and going to see my horse. Yeah, yeah. Sarah. Hey. Ryan's new roommate is single. Hi. Uh, I'm Darren. I really like your dress. like your shirt. There's something so exciting about you. You're a lot of fun. You deserve to have fun. You're a... Oh. Sarah. Are you okay? Allison Brie plays Sarah. As we just heard mentioned uh, uh, a number of occasions, um, she 
Uh, he has clearly some mental health issues. She uh, has a roommate named uh, Nikki. Um, where does this movie take place? Do they, they do they say it's just like a place? I'm assuming it's shot in California. Um, yeah, I don't I don't know where it's taking place. I don't know if they announce where it's some taking place. Some kind of suburb of some place. Um, she works at a craft store. Um, she really likes horses. And uh, she looks a lot like her grandmother, Helen. Her stepfather. Stepfather. Paul Reiser's stepfather, stepfather, right? Yeah. Stepfather, was played by Paul Reiser. Uh, Molly Shannon's in this movie. She plays her boss, Joan. Uh, you got a Jay Duplass is in there. It's a Duplass Brothers production. Um, plays, you know, the uh, the therapist she eventually sees. You get a cool, interesting Robin Robin Tunney. Uh, and Matthew perf- Greg Grubler. Yeah. Which is perfect because of the criminal think it's lines. Yeah, exactly. Um, that play the characters on a TV show. And he gets, he gets to make out with Alison Brie for like, I don't know, two minutes at the end of this <laughs> In this movie, for some reason, don't don't forget. Also, we get some Toby Huss. You do get some Toby Huss, yeah, and you get some David T- Paymore. Yeah, you were, you just mentioned you were excited about Doctor David Paymore. He makes a lot of sense as a doctor. Hmm. I actually think he was a good doctor. Yeah, he seemed like he was really concerned about her. <coughs> everyone is everyone does a good job of being pretty concerned about her. Well, yeah, besides her roommate, besides Nikki. But I think her roommate, but then eventually Nikki kind of like. I think her roommate is concerned about her, but she just kind of. Um, she doesn't really know what to do with this. She doesn't seem like the kind of person who would be knows how to take care of like a, a, a significantly mentally ill person. Yeah. Oh, don't forget also John Ortiz, our good our good friend John. Ortiz. Yeah. That's Randy. That was, he plays Ron. Oh, Ron, 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 not Randy. Um, so I mean, it's hard to kind of describe exactly what happens in this movie. There's not like a plot per se. Is that like she's Sarah goes on with her life and. Things kind of happen. In, we get little pieces of her backstory. She used to ride horses. Her friend fell off a horse and uh, I'm assuming hurt her neck or had a brain injury. And so now she's in this yeah. assisted living facility and she's, uh, you know, she has memory, memory problems. She can't and... really walk. Um, you know, the, the, the taglines in this movie say that, you know, Sarah is a person who's more comfortable in front of with like fictional characters and horses. Um, there's a lot of things in here that just kind of seem jammed in here like the horse thing i think is fairly there's a fairly loose um she has a fairly loose relationship to horses like in terms of the movie it's just it doesn't ever seem real i think one of the problems <coughs> with this movie is that like it doesn't seem very genuine um i think the script is like a it's an honest attempt at looking at mental health but it's also like a heavily worked idea of of looking at mental health with like with the you know the fugue states that she goes into kind of depicted by this white room and she's like laying on the, on the ground and she looks over and she sees Ron and she looks over and she sees this other girl and, you know, she eventually meets them and there's those dark things and the shaking and the, I, I, the score is by, uh, Josiah Steinbeck, Jeremy and Jeremy Zuckerman and Tolga Kaharman. Um, I think it's really bad. Yeah, um, no, it, 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 it really overwhelms is the exact word. So, the really, really good work that Alison Brie is doing here of illustrating this woman's descent into um, a real psychosis, like unchecked, and then we don't know we don't know why it's unchecked. We don't ever get a, a sense of why she's not taking medication or why she kind of won't get legitimate help um, before it gets too out of control that she can recognize help where it is. Um, you get this really excellent descent into that psychosis, but there's just like so much, there's so many loose ends. And then I think to tie up the loose ends, they've done all this 
kind of directorial work just like to to make stuff mean things yeah and i'm not sure what it, ultimately i'm not sure what it ends up meaning i i i said to you that actually i think the script in this is is solid it, it definitely needed a couple pass-throughs um but there's some moments kind of written in there like when she's on the phone hearing joan talk to her and she think and she's hearing what joan's saying yeah. to her later like that's a, a major element of paranoid schizophrenia and also when you're on like also, when you had had a brain injury, like that happens a lot in terms of mm-hmm. your your brain kind of interprets you hearing it before it's being said, sure, sure, sure. even though it's already being said. But this and is what I would say. Moments of that that are kind of it's when it's those practical things are fine. It's when this movie decides it wants to get out of the realm of the practical and into the fantastical that it becomes not. Um, it, it doesn't. It really doesn't work. It well, really falls apart. I, I've. I've. I said to you that it feels like we just talked about Birds of Prey, but it felt like a kind of James Poulsold film mm-hmm. um, in that, you know, you get a solid script that could have been handled well by a director who, who knew how to kind of like bring this to life, kind of mm-hmm. like bring something that's so idea heavy yeah, and so filled with this kind of um, interpretive and, uh, fantastical elements of dealing with real problems and real issues mm-hmm. um, and then just kind of mishandles it. And the reason I feel like James Poulsold doing that is because like he had those issues with like smashed, you know, like smashed doesn't really, doesn't really go fantastical, but it takes a really kind of pertinent and like spectacular. Now it takes like really pertinent topical things dealing with alcoholism, but kind of ends up dealing it with this kind of weird, new and this weird hands-offness yeah like this distance and going with the fantastical like that even if it's written to the script um did a real disservice like there's that attempts to when she's lucid everything's in blue and grays and when she's not as lucid and when she goes through those kind of like um what that's called vacant absent moments uh it's it's more peach or when she's she's yeah. you know less lucid it's peach and there's those attempts in the mix of the Well, white then you try room. to tie. And she, they try to tie it to that peach fabric that yeah. that woman mentions, which is which is fine. Like from a sim, like a symbolism standpoint, that stuff works really well. But then it goes. It's too heavy-handed, so it doesn't feel doesn't feel natural. It feels too staged. It doesn't feel like it. It springs out of her, um, like her dementia or her psychosis. It seems like it's just. It's been artfully like these rooms have been artfully decorated <coughs> to you know best express the thing that I really want you yeah. to, to get take away from this movie. I mean, I think it's best to compare this movie to like Memorabla. Um, to look at the film, like the the stylistic choices, because Memorabla is, you know, heavily stylistic and dealing with kind of a visual representation of um, Alzheimer's. Uh, but um, in doing so, it, it really kind of has this earnestness to it. Um, well, because because well, like Memorable is dealing with the uh, William Ultermolin, kind of kind of like is, takes a lot of inspiration from that. He was like the artist who painted a self image mm-hmm. every year, like mm-hmm. kind of progressed through Alzheimer's, um, and it kind of takes a lot of those elements of like just that descent in terms of both the sadness and despair. Or has this film tries to do those elements and tries to, it feels like it's trying to replicate the ways in which paranoid schizophrenia is kind of lived in. But it but also doing so it comes off as completely artificial and, and uh, dishonest. I just, I think, I think your, <coughs> your, um, 
juxtaposition to memorable is interesting in the sense that I think in that case, the point of view is really focused. You know what I mean? Um, in this, I think the point of view is really muddled. So it's clearly mostly, or they want us to take it like all from her point of view, but it's kind of not. You know what I mean? Like we, there's multiple people who were seeing Sarah's experience through. I think the, we don't know, I think, well, I think, I think one of the problems is that, and I think they intended this, is that we don't know what's real and what's not real. Mm. Okay? But I think it's not... That seems to me... It seems to, in this movie, work more as a confusion of direction than it does an example of, like, a confusion of mind. Yeah, exactly. I think if this film had had that focused narrative in that when you are focusing on Sarah, you know, you, you fully understand she's an unreliable narrator without presenting those questions. You kind of, like, present those questions, but only through her vision of it. Mm-hmm. Um, but when you step outside of it, uh, you know, some like the more, some of the best, I think, directed and best like constructed scenes are like the scene with her and Darren in the graveyard. Where, yeah. Like, yeah. He's yeah. just kind of fucking melting down. Cause he, you know, he has his own sort of issues himself. Um, not necessarily with mental illness, but he has his own kind of like emotional issues he's mm-hmm. dealing with. And that kind of like back and forth. And that's like a real through line to knowing that she's suffering from this or where Ethan um, Jay Duplass's character is kind of like listening to her when he has to release her. I thought that was a great scene, yeah. Um, and you could just see on his face of like, this girl's probably going to kill herself. Well, Because he's trying to get her to say like, you know, he's trying to get her to say like, right. what are you going to do? Like, what do you mean you're going to do? She's like, well, I know what I have to do now. Like, and those are the great moments of showing you uh, that would have been in, in more capable hands, you know, the through line to be like, no, everything you're seeing from her point of view is is skewed by this disease. Yeah. And when you get that outside view, now, you know, even though Sarah's in this scene, even Osprey's like acting the fuck out of the scene, you know, she isn't the line of sight rehab. We are seeing this through their perspective. Right. You get the counter, you, you, for these brief moments, you get these really beautiful emotional counter narratives that they just kind of, that they, they, they just take away from you. I mean, that, that Ethan scene, I think, is really, really affecting and powerful. But then, for whatever reason, they do that weirdo circular narrative thing where like Molly Shannon, it's the beginning of the movie and Molly Shannon is seeing like the ass of the horse type of thing. You know what I mean? And why was that in the beginning of the movie? If it's not to like represent some kind of circular narrative, but why is there a circular narrative? Like is, is this all in Molly Shannon's head? Like what's actually happening here? There's no reason to undercut this stuff because it's not from that shit's not from Sarah's point of view. So if it's not from Sarah's point of view, why is it in there? It doesn't exactly. make any sense. If it's especially if it's crazy. If it's crazy stuff and it's not Sarah, why it can't be there? It doesn't make any sense. And the thing that, that I think is bothersome is is it ends up becoming like you'll get people kind of seeing this as like, oh, maybe it's like a ta- circular time thing. Maybe it's not really dealing with mental illness. The ramp in the like the ramp over the ocean type thing. Yeah, exactly. But it's like, but when eighty percent of your movie is telling you this about mental illness, and when everything else around this screenplay. And the you know performances in those moments point towards this being deliberately about mental illness. You can't suddenly have these like little integers kind of thrown in there, like, but maybe not, because that's it does well, a complete disservice yeah. to the, the thematic elements of the film. There's nothing at all about this film that rises themes of like you know the the pandering of mental illness to you know quash actual real struggles like 
you know, there, there's nothing that suggests no, she's actually being abducted by aliens. Are no, 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 none. Circular. Nothing. Like it's there, but it's just a part of her paranoid delusions. Right. That is how it's presented throughout the entire vein of this narrative, and those moments where you get it through a like had it had she been there, had she seen Joan looking, and then saw thought Joan was seeing the ass of the horse. Right. That's fine, but Joan's by herself. So it doesn't make any fucking sense. Um, well, she, and it, 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 it is. She is there. She's like standing in front of her, but, but her head is turned. Yeah, she's, she's not, not involved. It's a Jones point yeah, of view. Exactly. So like it doesn't, it's right. It's not, it's not consistent. And I don't, it's, it, it can't be about, it can't be about both things simultaneously. And one thing, it also can't be an alien, like abduction story or a future story. If, if that part of that story that makes it so is not told from Sarah's point of view. You just can't do it. I understand it's really clever and cool to like show the horse scene like twice and be like, what's happening? Like, where are we in the narrative? Like what, you know, maybe but it was the future, but that doesn't make any sense. It's not clever when it's just completely undermining I mean, everything you've done. I want, I think, and it's frustrating. Cause like Alison Brie, this. I mean, yeah. I, I'm interested to see what the, I, she should stop doing Jeff Beta movies. Um, I think this is her third one. Third or second? Well, she did. No, she did Joshi in the Little Hours. So did she yeah, did Joshi. Third, oh, yeah, I know she did. Joshi. Um, she needs to stop making these movies. She needs to start making like real movies. Um, and I don't, I'm not saying that like she needs to go out and like work with like Steven Spielberg or whatever. Like I don't mean that. She just needs to find people that aren't making like too clever for their own good films. And I know that there's a whole culture. Well, there's a whole segment of the culture a, that she's in a Dave Franco movie coming up. I, well, they're married, so that makes sense. Um, and in a, a Clea Duvall movie. Um, but I'm I'm I want I want better things for her, um, because she's doing some really extraordinary things. I think in this in this movie. Yeah, and it's it's just unfortunate. It, I I think it's a I think it's a solid screenplay that just needed rewrites and needed well it just i've been having this conversation about myself and it also of... could have just been the iron heart hockey be influence in there no we need to do a bonus episode about how much i hate that movie i don't want to watch it i don't want to i don't want to watch it again either um but she it needs this movie needed to figure out what it wanted to be and it's a thing that i've been thinking about a lot in terms of um novels and and my own like stuff that i'm working on and really needing to figure out what the point of what i'm doing is and then going from there and what my characters are supposed to be doing and then going from there. I don't think this movie I don't think this movie did that. I don't think this movie asked that question first. What was the point? So it simultaneously wants to be funny and really, really sad and difficult. <coughs> it simultaneously wants to be about mental illness and maybe the future in aliens. I don't know, but you can't do both things. Um, you can't do them both sincerely. Is I, I think the point that I'm trying to make. Um, anything else? No. All right. So we will be right back uh, with Mario's number 33. How many times in this podcast, Tom, have I used the words German Impressionism or mise-en-scene? Lots. Many. 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 Well, there are important aspects of film to me even when I was young you know and people would mock the best art direction Oscar like art direction and now production design which is a dumb dumb fucking term I don't like it 
I don't like the term production design. Bring back art direction. You want me to do it? I, I just want you to fight. I, I didn't know if you wanted to fight back against that. No, I don't care what they call it. I think this new international, best international feature is a good idea. Does that mean like now a film can be in English and win? Um, I don't know. That's going to happen. Now that Paras- now Parasite's won, they're going to get some English language movies. They're like, yeah, 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 a bunch of Canadian English movies are going to win it. It's all Canadian movies now from now on. All right. A couple like souvenir would win. Um, yeah, that's good. But I've always loved the look of a movie. Mm-hmm. You know, I've I was not necessarily awed by the cinematography, but by the choices in how a scene was set up and how you know items were kind of splayed around. And I think it kind of comes back from a young age to really loving the scene in Hook. Where they're eating the 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 kind of paste, food. yeah, 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 and just loving the look of that, the paste, like the paste and like the color palette and everything. Or you know, I was obsessed with Pee Wee's Playhouse as a child, oh, and yeah. Batman, you know, and like Tim Burton's kind of like the king of just weird aesthetics and Beetlejuice, and you know, like, like four five year old Mario just watched these movies. I think like, Tim Burton has seen your number 33. I think, I think maybe. <laughs> um, and so, you know, sometime in college, I was in a, sometime in college, my freshman year of college, I was in a film studies class. The only film studies class I took. And the first film we watched was this movie. Hmm. Horror movie. The plot doesn't really matter. I'm not going to talk about the plot because it made no impact on me. But what made an impact on me was the thing that makes an impact on everyone when it comes to this movie. It is the 1920 uh, Robert Wine film, The Doctor, The Cabinet of Dr. Caligari. I like light movies. I like just romantic stuff. Have you ever heard of uh, The Cabinet of Dr. Caligari? Mm-mm. You can't see film without seeing that first. Whoa, okay. The cross cuts? I'm like really into editing. Editing is like my favorite. I'm like an editing freak. Really? Oh, it's German. Okay. Black and white and silent. Get it. I had to see it when I was eight. Really? Yeah. I love film. That seems so young. That's all I ever liked. Is that ready? Yeah, Listen, I just want to feel taken care of by a movie. This does it. it, 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 it it's, it's, like, it's like a black cloak. It keeps you Yo. warm in a top hat, and it, it, it takes care of you in its own I way. I tried. I seriously tried. This is the only way out. Look closer. Don't look away. Oh, my God. Hey, I did it. You watched it? Yeah. The whole thing? <laughs> I'm, I'm free! Finally! I'm free! Wait, what is this? Once you watch The Cabinet of Dr. Caligari, you're cursed until someone else watches the film. What am I gonna do now? I had never seen that sketch. It's just like in the middle of like another episode, and it's more about Netflix than it is about the cabinet of Dr. Caligari, but I thought it was it was very funny. Yeah. I will say this. From a plot perspective, the cat the cabinet oh my god, I keep wanting to say the doctor of cabinet Caligari. Just say it. Uh, we got our cabinet, own podcast, we can say whatever we want. Cabinet is, is a is a stunningly forgettable feature in terms of its plot. 
Um, you know it deals with a person kind of in the same asylum telling his story mm-hmm. about this doctor. And you know it goes from there. and he did, But it doesn't, you know, it is stunningly for a silent film, silent. In the sense of most <clears throat> silent films of the era, you know, a film we'll talk about in about 10 weeks is much more verbose. Metropolis is much more verbose. And it's, grand. <clears throat> yeah, grand, but also it, it, it is plot forward. Mm-hmm. This film is ideas forward um, in the sense of the theme forward. It doesn't necessarily care about the story isn't a prominent feature. It is the visual aesthetic telling yeah visual uh, yeah aesthetic and eliciting emo- an emotional response uh-huh. um as i said i saw this at an older age i saw it at 18 and so i had seen a lot of the movies that influenced this you know way earlier mm-hmm. but the reason this shows up here is the fact that it is it is the pivotal film that isn't that's, that's the brain pivotal film. It is the pivotal film that doesn't have the impact on me, but that without this, nothing exists that is definitive to my love of film. Hmm. Um, as I said, Tim Burton played a really big role in eight year old Mario because that's where Tim Burton should be left for most people is when they're eight to ten years old. That's kind of where He's I left him. Tim Burton's fine. I actually would argue that he stinks. I feel like we have to have the same conversation about Tim Burton that we have with you like, about you and McGregor. I like Sleepy Hollow a lot still. Mm. Cares. I don't know if that's in spite of Johnny Tim Depp Burton. sucks. Yeah, but I like Christina Ricci in that. She's fine. I like uh What's his name? Richard uh Oh man. Heavy set guy. He played Uncle Dorsley. He was in History Boys. I can't remember his name. Oh, right now. um, I don't know. This is bad podcasting. I'll look it up. <laughs> Continue. Um, no, that's a bummer. But yeah, coming to this, I, I, I was, you know, in awe of, of, of its visual style and in the ways in which it conveyed the emotional element it wanted to do. It, it was not, you know, the flat expectation of, storytelling of just you know backgrounds serving no purpose whatsoever um beyond you know being backdrops for the story Mm -hmm. uh the sets the designs the crooked angles the slightly tilted camera played a role more grand than the richard griffiths richard griffiths i loved him too i can't remember his name um played a more dominant role than the story being told itself, the story being told to you. It, the sets, the way, the things you're seeing are the story, are what you remember. The crawling up the rooftop with its askew, Huvillian-style angles. Mm -hmm. Um, And when I watched this, it wasn't so much that I responded to it with love. It's, you know, we're talking about my favorite films of all time. It doesn't show up on that list. I think it's a pretty okay movie. But this is the 
drop of paint in a sea of white that kind of slowly spreads throughout and touches everything that I like. Um, I grew up on the Universal Monster movies, you know, and you see the influence there. Well, yeah, because I, there's, I mean, there's all that, this is attached really heavily to, I mean, Cicere and Nosferatu are like, like interlinked in like yeah, exactly. film history forever. They move the same way. They look the same way. They act roughly the same way. <laughs> um, they both emerge from co- from coffins. Um, yeah. So I mean, that just makes that just makes a lot yeah, of and, sense. And and I think from this, better films are are made. You know, this is the the experiment in film. The um, the the beginning of, of things that like Fritz Lang and, you know, Igmar Bergman, especially with like Igmar Bergman, especially Fritz Lang would kind of pick up and just explode mm-hmm. onto the scene with, um, you know, it's a Virgin Spring and Seventh Seal look like take that kind of like contrasting colors, like even though they're black and white from like this and Fritz Lang, you know, clearly, well, yeah, obviously and film noir in general. Um, you know, and this, this, like I said, is just, just the the final drop of water that breaks open the floodgates. And you know, there's, there's, it's, it's one of these films that that there's, there's not much to be said about it that hasn't already been said. But it's, it's the, it shows up so highly on my list because I placed, you know, it, it is something I have profound respect for. And the fact that it it does, mm-hmm. you know, set the tone for what I respond to in cinema, and it's weird because I don't respond to it as much, you know. I the the, the actual kind of askew mise en scene isn't extremely prominent. It's just kind of in that like middle section, you know, where it goes really intensely into this kind of psychotic. Well, there's a Babes in Toyland like component to like a lot of the town stuff like Lauren Hardy style yeah with like the well, that's real, why I said like, like the really small like, houses that's why I said like or Huvillian yeah yeah um but when when because uh, I used to I loved Babes in Toyland like when I was growing up I hated Babes in oh, Toyland oh I loved it I was really I mean I thought it was kind of was that, Lauren, that was Lauren Hardy Lauren Hardy yeah I loved Lauren Hardy but yeah. somehow I couldn't well, get because it's not necessarily a Laurel and Hardy movie they're just in it it's terrifying to me it's terrifying yeah it was terrifying as a kid but I preferred and that I kind like of terrifying me. to like the Willy I was terrified of Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory also um but I preferred that kind of terrifying to the Willy Wonka kind of terrifying I also came to this movie very late and it was one of the I mean very late in terms of like 18, 19, 20 um, and it was Here's one of those like things two weeks ago yeah two weeks ago um, but it was one of those things you watched it just because you had to watch it. You know what I mean? It was one of those movies, kind of like how Fred Armisen and, and Carrie Brownstein are, are mocking, that you just kind of have to see. If you really like watching a certain type of movie, um, you know, a lot of things stem from Cabinet of Dr. Caligari. It's funny now to think of it in terms of, um, like, literature. It's very it's very old-school literature in its construction. You know what I mean? And, like, oh, let me tell you, you know... You have the. It starts in that mental hospital, and they're in that garden. He's like, "Well, let me tell you a tale of something that happened," and you know, just kind of. So everything's it's not necessarily a flashback. It's just kind of told in that old school Hawthorne, um, Melvillian way, where they're you know someone's just kind of uh, uh, you know recounting a tale. Um, so it has a, like a fantastical element to it, um, 
But again, I'm I actually think watching the whole movie is like the worst thing you can do. Because you're right. It's that middle you want to watch that middle section to the to the end where like everything kind of becomes a little unhinged. Yeah, the framing the framing narrative especially in the beginning is is boring. It's pretty standard issue what you would assume people could do in 1920s. And it's a little weird, but it's also just very, very <laughs> slow. It's the problem with having no story is that even though this is not like a crazy long movie, you're just kind of like, okay, what? Like, what is happening here? Yeah, it doesn't have the, the freneticism that you would get from certain kind of better silent films. Mm-hmm. The, the quintessential silent film, like I said, we'll talk about yeah. later. It starts out just incredibly fast in terms of its editing. So even though it's kind of opening with a baseline story of establishing the people on the boat, spoil, you know, no, if, if you no. can't get that at all, uh, it's, it's a metaphorical it's, it's boat. Edited so, it's edited so quickly and there's so many, so many things you're seeing that it, it has a speed to it. Whereas this is just like a lot of steady shots. Well, because that's know, a lot pushing. Of... This is kind of set. This is. It's interesting that you're you're bringing that distinction up because this is a kind of settled silent film. You know what I mean? Where mm. they weren't like necessarily pushing the boundaries of what film could do, as much as just kind of being like, well, film does this. Let's make a kind of a creepy, scary movie, like with what everything is doing. Where the movie you're referencing, and then, you know, and Metropolis also, was like, well, we're going to just blow everything up. Like, we're going to push this shit as far as we can push it. And Metropolis kind of pushed it <coughs> in, a, in, a, in a movement sense. And the other movie you're talking about, or in a scale sense, and the other movie you're talking about pushed it in a scale sense, and then of, like, how film actually, like, the, the medium itself, and what you could do with the medium, and, and how you could, like film something and then create a whole new meaning based on on what you did with it after you filmed it. You know what I mean? Where this movie is just kind of like, here's this cool spooky movie that you might like if it shows up at your town one day. Um, more so than it is pushing the boundaries of what film could do. Yeah, there's... There's there's elements to this that I find interesting. I the one thing I, I really find interesting is you know I, I haven't read the book yet because it's incredibly hard to find. But um, there's a lot of discussions on oh the Nazism book. You talk about from Caligari to yeah. to Hitler. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't. I, I, that that's one of the things I feel is reading into it. I I don't especially since I think like a like the frame. Uh, Originally, there wasn't even a frame story. It was mm-hmm. just kind of like the general kind of horror idea yeah. was established, and that frame narrative was put in later. Because hmm. um, the, the argument is, and this comes off heavily off of uh, Siegfried Kreutzer's From Calgary to Hitler from 1947, of that, you know, no film has been so thoroughly understood through a particular interpretation as Calgary and Weimar cinema generally uh, through, you know, the social psychological approach. And I just... I don't buy that. I don't see this as essential of a Weimar film, a Wey- oh, sorry, Weimar, Weimar kind of republic film. It sets the tone definitely for like giving Fritz Lang fucking shit tons of money to make Metropolis, which then bankrupts film studios and you know gives the Nazis an in. Um, but I don't see this necessarily as a reflection of kind of like I mean it's the first film 
post-World War I that is allowed to be screened internationally. There's still really no idea about its success, mm-hmm. like how well it did. It's just it's the first film after, you know, Treaty of Versailles and everything where... Do you think it was in the Treaty of Versailles? <laughs> you will have to make a horror film <laughs> with weird angles. Um, what? Come on, man. The we doctor, hate weird angles. The doctor must sound like a type of Italian pasta. <laughs> And he must have um, a bunch of close-up of himself just looking around. Just does. Yeah. Uh, I, I don't necessarily buy the idea that this is representative of kind of like the social consciousness of Germany in the rise of national socialism. I, I, I don't see that. Mm-hmm. I, I, I see that has more people. Like, I think the, the, the claim... Even in 1947, when these kind of arguments started, that Caligari had to its impact on cinema, and you, you could even say like in terms of German cinema in the Weimar Republic, and what it would eventually you know lead to the collapse of those studios like uh, UHC, is that what it was? Um, you know, like that is obvious, but it in itself like. I don't feel as though uh, UFA, sorry, UFA part right now, part of my feet. Um, I don't feel this is is doing that. I don't feel this is on the pulse of <laughs> the culture in general. Mm-hmm. Um, I still need to get my hands in the book, so maybe I'll, I'll retouch that in in the future. If you know, once I'm able to read that book, but I just. There's nothing in this that suggests as though the psychosis we're being we're seeing in this film is representative of kind of like the the belief in the psychosis or the um, gaslighting that was going on. Well, I think there's an urge German. to attach um, cultural relevance to some of these things in light of what happened, you know, with the rise of 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 Hitler and, and the Nazis and stuff like that, like where it came from, and it's clearly this inspired things that would have would inspired Hitler so it's I mean it's interesting or inspire films that you know inspire right. films that would cost a lot of money or that would kind of disconnect from what that would be too idealistic or too kind of abstract yeah and thus which kind of like lends itself to say that maybe this was a success <laughs> if they maybe were if they, throw if, money exactly yeah into these kind of like experimental films um but in and itself, I don't think it's saying anything. I think it's just like, oh, a horror film about you know the potential of this being a crazy man and in reframing his narrative and telling his tale, we present the things to look kind of skewed. That would be kind of cool and like, you know, stylistically a fun choice. Yeah, and I'm sure it's things that's happening already on the stage. You know, mm-hmm. uh, you know, you, you see some productions of like Faust in that time like using those kind of stage choices and mm-hmm. using those kind of production design choices of creating this kind of very unnerving set design. Mm. Um, but all that said, it doesn't undermine the fact of, you know, this is a film you do show to somebody to be like, look, the way a film looks matters. You talked about that with Tokyo Story. Uh, and, you know, we talked about Tokyo Story about the placement of an item can matter. You yeah. know, you don't just film a movie. You, you can, you know, if you, if you want to do a mumblecore or you want to do a Kelly Reichard or you want to do some that, something that's a little more naturalistic. It's but perfectly... even those, I mean, that stuff still <laughs> plays into, like... Oh, absolutely. You know. 
but it, it's fine. It's fine to tell a narrative that isn't doing that. But there is also a lot to this. I think it's like the purest form of looking at a movie and being like, look, you can use the way something looks like you can use a set design or, or anything. And even you know, like this is something you could say, say to like the, the earliest kind of people going to make like their own student films and whatnot, like the look of a movie in terms of, you know, just spending a couple bucks to like build a set. Or not like even mean a lot to like, not even thinking of spending what it emotes, but he also like playing with depth of field and angle. You know what I yeah. mean? Because there's a lot of that stuff in this movie that really benefits from... Like, like I bet you like, Brian De Palma watched the shit out of this movie. I am willing to bet he watched the shit out of this movie. Yeah. <laughs> I think that is a safe bet. Um, and he would have a very dry conversation about, like, its excellence. <laughs> Something like that. To be honest, though, I would not turn down a conversation with Brian De Palma. No, but I bet it would be boring after a while. Yeah, it'd be like one of those ones where it's like... Ugh. But, like, if I had, like, four beers and I started talking to Brian De Palma, I bet you it'd be super awesome. I bet he would use a lot of jargon. And you'd be like, I don't know what that means, Brian De Palma. And he'd be like, when is this contest winner going to get out of here? Who made this contest up? (laughs) Why was this the only entry? Why does anyone want to talk to me? Why was the choice between this guy and Armand White? What am I doing? Um, Oh, he's yours. You were doing it. (laughs) <laughs> that was my movie for a second. Um, but yeah, no, it's, it's, it isn't a great movie, but it's always something that I think is worth a watch. And it's, it's pivotal. Like I talked about with Metropolis and maybe this is like begging the question of like the most the films I consider to be actually truly pivotal um, as universally pivotal or, you know, kind of like this in Metropolis, like Metropolis for what it did culturally like i think metropolis is a culturally significant movie and doc cabinet dr caligari as i said way back in the episode of with metropolis is significant to giving rise to what would come a film and you know setting the tone for the weimar republic and you know like in terms of the rise of like nazism and whatnot you know that does play a role in that um it's a universally pivotal film but not also boring. A good movie. It's it's good for thirty minutes. It's okay. It's tough. Nosferatu's better. Nosferatu's significantly a better movie. But again, I will point to something I said um, a couple weeks ago about something, um, and that you have to have a mythology, and so Nosferatu benefits from having that mythology attached to it. Where this is kind of like, at some point, you just if you lose the thread of what's happening, you're just like, I don't know what's happening. I just have to sit and wait for. Like, the cool shots to come. And then the cool shots take, like, ten minutes to come. And you're just like... When they come, you're like, wow, that's really cool. And then, oh, there's just ten more minutes of this. Just three people standing around in a fuzzy frame, like, all the way to the left of it. And looking at a book. (laughs) What's happening here? Um, Yeah. All right. That's it? That is is it on Dr. Cabinet, Dr. Cabinet. I think that's... I think reading about Doc Cabinet of Dr. Caligari is much more exciting than watching it. Because it's, it's, it's a profoundly interesting film to study. Mm-hmm. It's not an extremely interesting film to watch outside like that once over. Or like looking at pictures of it. Unless, it's a great film to look at pictures of. Yeah, that's true. It is, it's, when you look at pictures of it, you're like very intrigued. That's what happened to me. I was like, whoa, I gotta see this. 
And then you watch and you're like, but that's only like 20 minutes of it. It's just that one shot of, yeah. Yeah. Um, all right, we'll be right back with my number 33. Welcome back. Uh, my number thirty-three. Um, I will. I will not do any preamble, as is my way. I will um, just say it. It is uh, Stanley Kubrick's nineteen seventy-one film, A Clockwork Orange. There was me, that is Alex, and my three droogs, that is Pete, Georgie, and Dim. And we sat in the Corova milk bar trying to make up our razoo docks what to do with the evening. The Corova milk bar sold milk plus, which is what we were drinking. This would sharpen you up and make you ready for a bit of the old ultra-violence. Um, so it's... This is um, this is a complicated one, I think, a little bit. Um, so its position in my in my viewing and, and reading uh, life, I think, is is really significant to um, its position on this list and in 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 terms of like how it kind of I don't want to say affected my life because that sounds so dumb, but um, in terms of its position in my life, um, it is significant that it came after Fight Club and my kind of Fight Club um, mania. Um, so people now, you know what I think is really weird um, with like all the 1999 stuff that just happened last year, but people talking about Fight Club like it was this really like subversive movie and how like, you know, people walked out <coughs> in the theater and they like didn't want to show it. And, um, and I saw it in theaters in 1999 and I didn't really think it was like as subversive as, as people want to say that it was. Did you? When I saw it? Yeah. Um, were you just like, this is fucked up? Or were you just like, that's cool? No, I think I understood what it was saying. Right. And so that is, for me, that's like literally the exact thing that I was going to say. I didn't, I couldn't focus on the, the violence of it because I was too focused on like um, the, the politics of it, um, which I got really very into. Um, and we're going to talk about Fight Club later, but it's just kind of important to kind of put a pin into kind of where this starts. So Fight Club, I didn't start reading seriously. Like I was, I could read and I was a reader, but I didn't start reading seriously for like um, anything other than because people said I had to read um, until I read Fight Club. And then after Fight, I read Fight Club, like all the wheels came off of my life and I went from Fight Club to The Sound and the Fury was the next actual book I read. So I read all the Chuck Palahniuk books. What? The Faulkner Sound of the Fury? Yeah. yeah. I read all the Chuck Palahniuk books, and I was like, okay, I got to have more things. No. And then White Noise came next because people kept saying that Don DeLillo, DeLillo. was like Chuck Palahniuk. And then The Sound of the Fury came after that. And the, the next significant book that I read after that was um, Anthony Burgess's Clockwork Orange. Um, I read it before I saw the movie. I didn't read it because I was going to see the movie, but after I read it, I wanted to see the movie. And this would end up being the first significant Kubrick experience I ever had. Um, I had seen The Shining because you just see The Shining, but it didn't register as like a as as anything other than like a scary movie that it didn't really find as scary as everybody else seemed to find it. Um, so A Clockwork Orange became like my first Kubrick thing, and again. Um, it was a movie 
My first reaction to A Clockwork Orange, and one of the main like things that sticks with me, emotion that sticks with me is this, is one of general disappointment. So, like I described in my number 51, I think Jurassic Park was? I think Jurassic Park was my 51. Um, so, in 1993, I read the book, and then I went to go see the movie, and I had to cover my eyes because I, I just knew it was going to happen with the Dilophosaurus scene. I was like, oh, I don't want to look Dilophosaurus ripped Dennis Nedry's guts out. Um... There was a little bit to that here. I mean, I really thought I was on to something. But I don't. We, I, we. I think we've had probably like lots of conversations with this. When you used to read things, and when you used to like ex- back when I read, back when you, when you, you know, when you were like, you know, seventeen years old, and you were kind of, or sixteen years old, and when your brain kind of started firing away, and you kind of started developing your own. Um, like a real aesthetic sense of, of what you liked and what you didn't like. Every single thing, this is for me, I don't know how it is for you. Every single thing I thought of as mine. So like, I thought I was the only one in the world, and I still do this, so maybe it's just a me thing. I thought I was the only one in the world that could read A Clockwork Orange. Like I had deciphered the language. You know what I mean? Because it famously has, you know, Anthony Burgess had made up this language that these, that these guys speak. Um, to each other and the different ways to refer to things. And like after a couple pages, you kind of get into it and you can, you can just kind of breeze through this amazingly graphically violent and powerful book. Um, and it's just really disturbing book. And I felt like that, um, that stuff was my own stuff. I felt like I owned that stuff and I was close to that stuff. And I found the book very disturbing and hard to read. And then I saw the movie and I was really, really disappointed because I thought the book went places that the movie was afraid to go. And that is interesting because there's, I don't know how many rape scenes are in this movie. Three? Yeah. At least three. And there's a suggestion of like another one. Or there's an almost one with that, the woman after he's run the, te- they've run the tests on, uh, on Alex. Um, you know, there's an implied, I'm going to rape you scenario to there. So, um, you know, people die. They just beat people up. Um, you know, they stab people. There's, you know, Nazis and things mentioned. You know, I think Stanley Kubrick played this for um, for shock. And I wasn't, I wasn't really um, very shocked by it. Um, and I kind of um, held that disappointment... Um, for a long time, and it would be... I've subsequently found... I mean, so it's interesting that, like... So I think I saw this movie in 1999 because I definitely saw it before I saw Dancer in the Dark, and then I found my, like, cinematic shock person in Lars von Trier, and I didn't have to look anymore. And then I kept finding other things, like, literature that shocked me, like, um, you know, the J.T. Leroy stuff and, and, and some Dennis Cooper things. Um, who wrote the book Try? You ever read Try? That's, that's, that's a crazy book. Who's that I? Dennis Cooper, or even something like, um, you know, we've talked about a lot, like American Psycho, where I didn't really find that very shocking either, even though I think there's supposed to be some very shocking things in it. But again, I kind of understood. I was pretty shocked by the book American Psycho. See, I wasn't. I I got really into the tongue. The tongue getting cut out and oral sex that follows was pretty. I don't know. I was really, I was more creatively turned on by the lists of stuff. Oh. Like, I I didn't, I could. I wasn't turned on by no, 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 I just mean, like, creatively, like, sparked. Oh, okay. Like, artistically sparked by, I thought that stuff, like, <coughs> the list of, of what everyone was wearing and what things looked like to be way more interesting than any of the violence that was happening in that book. Um, 
Not that that makes me a better person or anything like that. Well, I think I think actually the most shocking bit of violence I've read was during that summer of desolation I talk about. I don't know if I talked about that on the podcast. Of Not yet. We're yeah. getting there, I think, aren't we? Um, maybe. Uh, but Dave William S. Burroughs' Naked Bunch. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Where they jump off the and hang themselves right as they come. Mm-hmm. That was the. That was like the one thing where I've ever read where I was like, Whoa. there's something about that that just made me go like, I don't know what it was. Yeah, I don't know. Um, but here's the thing. So I was disappointed by the, um, the content. You know, the shocking content. Like, I think the like way... It underwhelmed you? Yeah, because the way that, like, Burgess describes, like, Alex having to sit in that, like, sit and watch those movies is definitely not, like, a movie theater where nobody's in it and then all there's doctors in the back row and then there's um, just Alex straight-jacketed to a regular movie theater seat watching movies. Like, that wasn't... That didn't do it for me. You know what I mean? Like, when the initial scene, when he they beat up that homeless guy, it wasn't artistically rendered for shadows and lighting and stuff like that with, um, you know, with Alex, Malcolm uh, McDowell, who I think is really, um, gives a kind of Jack Nicholson-esque performance here where it's just so much, like Jack Nicholson in The Shining Light, it's just so much that it becomes kind of a character and doesn't really mean anything anymore. Um, he's not scary. He's not anything. He's just, he's just like a meme. They didn't have memes back in 1971, but he's just he. That's what he is. He's like a walking, talking meme. Um, what I will say though, Mario, is that, and I mentioned this in my text to you when I was watching, rewatching this for it, the um, the podcast. The first, hmm, the first part of this movie before he gets caught and taken to jail, which that whole stuff stinks. Everything after he gets caught is, I think is just a failure. Um, In a lot of ways that Stanley Kubrick is, has generally been considered a failure. You know what I mean? Just meandering. um, We'll get to like some meaning things, I think in a little bit, but like that end stuff doesn't have any meaning. It's not symbolic of anything. Um, The bureaucracy stuff that I think he's really trying to hammer home as being, you know, something being ridiculous, being kind of antithetical to the violence that that um, Alex is engaged in or being just as problematic as what Alex is doing. Um, I don't think works. I think he just puts that in here because he needs to make a movie. Um, he needs to have a narrative. He needs to have a story. He needs to have dialogue. He just needs to have ideas to kind of justify everything. The fact that this movie is two and a half hours long. The first 30 minutes of this movie when Alex and his droogs are wreaking havoc all over everything and Alex is listening to records and Alex is, um, you know, having really fast sex with two women. Um, I actually think in the same way that we talked about in Cabin of Dr. Caligari in terms of like moving the medium forward. Um, I think this is a, I think Clockwork Orange is a fairly significant movie in terms of film history. I think it looks and it looks and sounds. So we talked about a new Morricone's um, good, the bad, the ugly score. I think if that's the number one score of all time, I, I, I would make a case that the Clockwork Orange score is like in the top five conversation. It's somewhere wherever you want to put it. Um, that the Wendy Carlos, that compute, that, that synthesizer stuff. It's so like those tones are so round and they're so pregnant and they just, they carry so much of the weight of this film, but they are, they act 
as like the perfect balance to, or not the perfect balance, but they act like the perfect support to when I find to be a really texturally like profound movie. I think what Stanley Kubrick was doing here was um, beyond anything he would do after this. It is, it is like real life somehow depicted on screen, but like in the most artful way possible. And I'm thinking of, I'm thinking of like the slow, I'm thinking of like Alex walking through that record store. You know what I mean? There's nothing in cinema that looks like Alex walking through that record store, that sounds like Alex walking through that record store. Everything is fully realized. You know what's weird about Stanley Kubrick is that he has all these moments where it seems like he hasn't done any set design. Like, remember at the end of the movie where they're playing the, the, the Beethoven really loud and he's just like in a room and it's just like a regular room in a cottage. You know what I mean? He's in like the most contemporary house ever that's got like tiers of of stairs and you know in the living room and stuff like that you know what i mean and everything's on levels and everything the angles are all weird but then he's just like in a regular cottage bedroom just doing nothing and then um you know he goes you know they they pan downstairs and they're just in a billiard room in front of a fireplace it seems under designed but certain moments it's not about the sets i don't think it's about the way that kubrick interacts with the world around him. And when he's on, it's totally fucking incredible. It is incredible. So, I mean, that whole sequence from like the very beginning of the movie to when he gets caught, um, is just, is just unbelievable. Like it looks, it looks, sounds and feels like nothing else. And to the point where even though Al Malcolm McDowell is being ridiculous, um, you get, and even though that Karova Milk Bar opening is so, like, cliched at this point, you know what I mean? Even just from itself, it's just so ingrained in the popular culture of just, you know, the women, you know, the naked women, the milk coming out of their, their nipples, and they're just sitting there like statues and no one's moving. It's like this tableau thing, and the camera just pulls back, and you get that wow sound. It's just so a part of film language. But every time I watch that, it's just, it's like a fucking shot. Um, and if it didn't, if the content didn't push me like I wanted to be pushed in the way that the book pushed me and the way that a lot of the books I was reading pushed me, the aesthetics of this movie pushed me in a, in a, in a very specific direction, at least for the first, the first part of this movie. Again, this is a movie, this is a Stanley <laughs> Kubrick movie. So everything happens in, in, in parts and part one really works where part two is just like a giant, colossal, terrible failure of just trying to have a plot or just trying to have it mean something socially where I don't think Stanley Kubrick was really interested in this movie meaning anything socially. I think he just wanted to... He had some images in his head and he just wanted to make them. But to make them, he had to make the whole rest of this movie. Um, so in that way, when I said it, it creates like a thunderstorm in my head, is that I'm really, I'm really like creatively turned on by like the first half of this movie and I can give two shits about what happens with the rest of it. I actually think it stinks. So yeah, it's weird. It's a, it's like a weird film. It's a weird experience to, to go back and watch to like actively hate part of a movie that you actively love. Yeah. For me, this is actually my first time sitting down 
and watching this all the way through. Really? Um, yeah, I talked about that last week. I, I never actually really sat with it, and because I'm, we've talked about this. I'm not a Kubrick fan. Mm-hmm. You know, Eyes Wide Shut being that film that I had seen. It's kind of nominated for Best Picture. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, Eyes Wide Shut being the kind of like one of the few Kubrick films I've ever really responded to, and Full Metal Jacket. You know, and a couple others, but and Lolita, and Lolita. Uh, but I think that's almost in spite of Kubrick in itself. Um, <laughs> and and this kind of falls in the same veil as me, but it, it, less so what Kubrick's... Like, visually, and from, like, a sound design st- point of view, it, it's it's a stunning achievement. Like, mm-hmm. um, Wendy Carlos's score is... Oh, my God. Way ahead of its time. Yeah, oh, my. It's, it's it's about 10 years ahead of its time. To the point where, like, The Shining is doing, like, you know, she did The Shining score also, and it, it's doing something similar, but it doesn't, it does it to, like, a much lesser effect. Than yeah, there's there's a, a certain degree of scale that is visually in the early parts of this film and through its score and sound design that um, is lost in the second half. Mm. Um because it doesn't mean anything. Yeah. Like it's just like when they're when they're playing the Beethoven, like the Cindy's the Cindy Beethoven over the videos he's supposed to be watching, you know, which those videos are just like you know, they raped somebody. You know what I mean? Yeah, like it's, I, it's, nothing that's happening in those videos is, is, is not it's not really that interesting. And then having to do bloop, 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 it's like, okay, yeah, that's it, it's, it's hokiness. That, it's hokey. The images don't just the ideas in that thing don't justify like the majesty of the score. It's weird. Yeah, exactly. Um, but there is a scale and a largeness to, like, like re, a lot of people talk about the ultra violence of this film not being that violent, you know, and it, it's, it's less, it's more the insinuation of the scale and its rampantness. Mm-hmm. And the fact that I think that it's so reserved in terms of how violent it actually is, is less a choice of being afraid to be censored and more a choice of making sure you're already desensitized to it. Mm-hmm. Um, that it pulls back because it is the violence is intense, but it's not as prevalently shown. Well, cause because he, of the fact that they need you to not feel as though it's that bad. Well, and because everything, even though what's actually happening is, is pretty, pretty bad. terrible, and it, it sucks that like <laughs> um, you know it's just the nature of, of film. I'm assuming back then is that you know ratings boards or whatever had less of a problem with like. Um, you know, sexually assaulting a woman than they did, like, beating the shit out of a guy. So, like, they know... they This movie is fairly misogynistic in that regard, but they... There's a suggestion but, that they're, they're violent to everybody, but they have really no problem... They don't show any of, like guy on guy violence you know what i mean like the 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 two gang the gang fight is fairly staged you know what i mean i i I think that's a choice though because like you look at you know arthur penn's bonnie and clyde which came out four Mm -hmm. years earlier you look at the films of sam peck and pond they're much more intensely graphically violent films but nobody cut the breasts off a shirt of a woman who was bound and gagged like in those movies no true but i i think I do think the reservation on violence is is a thematic choice. Um, I, I, it's hard to say because Kubrick was really weird about this stuff. You know what I mean? Like, there's just there's a, there's always so many breasts in his movies, and he likes to put females in these really precarious situations, 
And in a lot of ways, that seems a lot more violent than anything that happens to anybody else in any, in his movies. But it's also not like violence, like according to Hoyle. You know what I mean? Like, there's not a lot of not a lot of blood. They're not stabbing people through the heart. Like he just cuts that guy's hand lightly, like so much he didn't sever any major cords. And, and there's even to the degree of like the singing the rain sequence where those kicks are pulled. I don't know if it's yeah. necessarily Malcolm McDowell not being good at anything. Um, but I, I feel as though it's, it's to underscore it, to make it like this is bad, but you're not, you're desensitized to it already because of the fact that it's not has egregious or it's possible. And even like the responses to like the attacks aren't, you know, people, like, you don't have to show it if you're worried about being censored or whatnot, but I think the fact that the people getting hit kind of make like a quick moan and then get silent mm-hmm. is more a suggestion that it's it's meant to... It's meant for the viewer to not feel as intensely emotive about it mm. and, and to make that question. Um, the thing that doesn't work for me in this, though, is, is what you brought up, and that is the fact that Malcolm McDowell fucking ruins it. Like, he's he's... Goes beyond, he just goes into caricature, and you know you get the nad set and whatnot. But he, like he kind of like it, it, the, the language of it. But he kind of like revels in it to a degree where you just don't want to see him on screen. I don't think I've seen a character in recent memory that I didn't want to see have their fucking face cut off more so than I wanted to see Malcolm well, McDowell have his face. Cut I don't want to hear him talk. I thought the I think the movie works in a lot of the same ways. It's interesting that this is the movie that comes after 2001 because this movie works best when no one's saying anything. Yeah, exactly. When it's images and score working with each other, this movie fucking is amazing. But unfortunately, it cannot he be matched. But he narrates the whole the thing, shit out of it. and some of the narration you don't mind because it works kind of with the score. It works like from an audio visual standpoint. Um, but when you are asking Malcolm McDowell to act, you are asking him to be do terrible. Do the impossible. Which is make... And he didn't. He didn't do this. Alex is not scary. Alex does not seem threatening. If Alex wasn't doing the things he was doing, you wouldn't fear him. Um, you actually don't fear anybody in this. Everyone... Like, all the the droogs They're are just pathetic. idiots. They're and, pathetic, yeah. yeah. Like, um, you're watching this going like... You kind of watch this in expectations and the way they're presented. They're not, they're not presented as kind of like menacing gross force, which like I know they are in the book. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, they're presented more as like I'm waiting for them to open up the wrong door and like Alex to have his knee bashed in. Yeah. And like that's his face cut off. I don't know why, but for some reason, I think it's just all birds of prey. I really wanted a face cut off. Well, one of the but things- it's just like and that's the bad thing is like I don't I ended up just not giving a shit. Right. I ended up just wanting to see like them be profoundly hurt right. because well, I was so it was so unpleasant yep. watching him, and not because like oh what they're doing it's just like I don't want to fucking see Malcolm Mc... for one thing Malcolm McDowell for as long, for as much as he's been kind of stalwart in cinema is best reserved for really small supporting roles yeah where he could just be Malcolm McDowell like have the Malcolm McDowell snarkiness. you think Caligula was too much. I haven't seen Caligula, actually. <laughs> um, I've seen pieces I've seen, of it. Yeah, I've seen scenes from it. Um, wink. Yeah, I mean, it's, um, it's weird because, like, the only time I get the, the – in, the, in the second half of the movie, the only, like, scene that I really respond to is when um, 
Georgie and Dim are like, you know, take him out to the, the middle of the woods and they kind of dunk his head underwater and they're like beating him with a nightstick. But you know why I respond to that scene? Because they've taken those nightstick hitting sounds and they've uh, transposed some glorious synth work over the top of it. You know what I mean? Turning those strikes into something more than they are. Um, yeah. And I think my problem is that I, I never know what Kubrick is trying to do. Like, I never have a really... I, the only movie I have a really clear sense of what Kubrick is trying to do is in 2001. And everything else that he's made, I have no real concept of, like, what the goal you, is. Because you don't know if there... You feel as though, like, there's there's an attempt to do a detachment, attempt to do, like, this this flatness to performance. Mm-hmm. But then when, you know, you have McDowell interacting with uh, Madge Ryan, like, playing Dr. Branham, and she does a great job in kind of, like, this, like, flat dystopian state... Yeah. Uh bureaucrat like she does a great job and then you're like oh wait no like Kubrick's okay with people living in their roles it's just about like but does that mean so many anything? people can't do anything like is there is there is there a commentary available here about bureaucracy like what would it be that it's bad or I good mean, or what I don't the novel like, has like commentaries on bureaucracy yeah but that's like, a, so that's the but, whole, like that's not that's not at all it's not here, here. it's not in the yeah. movie um which I think is I think it's one of the one of the reasons I, I will always gravitate towards like I'm you know books and I do movies is because this stuff seems like it has more stakes and then in the wrong hands like this you turn it into like a clown show with doesn't mean anything like you're just it's just Stanley Kubrick doing Stanley Kubrick things you know what I mean and everything looks like a Kubrick shot and it's you know it is a Kubrick movie. It's acted like a Kubrick movie. It's framed like a Kubrick movie. Um, but it doesn't mean anything. It's like the second half of Full Metal Jacket. You know what I mean? It's like the second half of... Um, I don't know. Or like Barry Lyndon. Like at all. Like the whole thing of Barry Lyndon. Like what is Barry Lyndon about? It's about lighting. Well, I don't know if I want to watch a, a whole movie about lighting. Yeah, exactly. I mean, that looks amazing. But that's the thing. I mean, I think the... The greatness of the first of portions of this movie are that those aesthetic things transcend um, pretty much everything that ever, anyone else was doing in film at the time, um, and that people uh, transcends a lot of the things that people are doing in film today. There are not a lot of people that can make that can produce moments as indelible and as profound as some of the stuff that Stanley Kubrick has done in this thing, and it has. Um, those moments have stuck with me forever um, and have influenced a lot of the things that I've, I, I watch now and I look for now in films. You know what I mean? It's not an accident that, like, I'm, I'm a huge Paul Thomas Anderson, like, obsessive. It's not an accident. You know what I mean? It's mm. because of these – it's because of, of this movie. Um, but I think Paul Thomas Anderson has done pretty much everything. I think he's taken a lot of the stuff that Kubrick was doing and, like, you know, expanded it and and, and perfected it. But I don't. I, I'd have to be. I'd be have to be hard pressed to find the moment in like Paul Thomas Anderson's oeuvre. No, I wouldn't be hard pressed to. But I would have to. I'd have to do some thinking about where like the record store scene compares to like Paul Thomas Anderson's best stuff or where the opening of this compares to Paul Thomas Anderson's best stuff. Um, yeah, I'd have to, I have to, I have to think about that. 
I have to think about it. But it's, I mean, it's, it doesn't matter. All right. Um, you just, sometimes the conversations run its course. And sometimes we just keep, we keep talking. And you're just like, this is one of those where you're just like, man, we'll just, we'll just stop. <laughs> we'll just stop. You know what you don't have to stop doing? It's tweeting us. I mean, you could, you could start. You could start tweeting us. Would be at good. Film Pivotal. Um, or you can go to pivotalfilmpodcast at gmail.com. You can email us at pivotalfilmpodcast.gmail.com or you can go to pivotalfilm.com. See a list of the movies uh, on our Pivotal Film list and a list of the beers that we drank and links to how to subscribe to us and links to our Twitter. Or you can call us. No one's called us yet, and that's fine. This will take some time. Uh, 475-777-2450 to tell us what your Pivotal Film is. Uh, you know, Tell us your Pivotal Film experience. You can also tell us if you disagree with us about A Clockwork Orange or Cabinet of Dr. Caligari or whatever. Um, but until then, I don't know what we're going to see next week. Um, you go see something, drink a beer, and we'll talk to you next week.